We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 7. 1 to 7. Verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we now examine this passage and think about it and turn our attention to your truth, your scripture, we pray that you would help us, Lord. We know that apart from you, we cannot do anything. We know that apart from you giving us understanding, we cannot understand. And Lord, we pray that you would help us think. Help us use the minds that you've given to us. Help us use the ears that you've given to us. Open our hearts, Lord, and show us wonderful things from your word. And Lord, I pray that you would enlarge our vision and understanding of life. For Lord, so often we see things so narrowly and shallowly because of the way we've been taught and the way that the world thinks. Lord, I pray that you would help us transcend the common way of thinking and you would help us to think your thoughts, for your thoughts are not man's thoughts, and your ways are not man's ways. I pray, Lord, that you would break through our stubbornness and inability to see, and that, Lord, you would show us the truth of life. Thank you for your truth and for this scripture. Teach us this morning for your name's sake. we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure that we've all heard the expression, coming of age, right? We've all heard the expression, coming of age. The expression, coming of age, means transitioning from childhood to adulthood. Transitioning from childhood to adulthood. That's when the person comes of age. Everybody in all places and all cultures recognize the difference between a child and adult, true? Between a child and an adult. Would you agree that all cultures recognize that? Would you recognize that? There's a difference, right, between child and adult. But the question is, when does that transition occur from a child to an adult? When does a person change from being in the category of a child to being in the category of an adult? We know there's a difference. But when does that change happen? When does a person come of age? Different societies across the world have different coming-of-age laws 
and rituals. We're all familiar with the laws here in the United States that basically when you become uh, 18 years old, then you are considered to be legally an adult. That's how the law works in this country. When you are 18, you're legally an adult. Before that, you're not legally an, an adult. You're actually in the, child, in the child category before you're 18. But when you become 18, you're held to a higher criminal standard, aren't we, when we become 18? Adults are held to a higher standard than children. When you become 18, you will be able to vote, which you weren't able to do before as a child. You'll be able to buy cigarettes and smoke. You'll be able to join the military and fight for your country. You'll be able to make love. You'll be able to live by yourself when you become 18. These are the privileges that come with becoming an adult that you don't have when you're a child. Why do we pick 18? How do we know that's when someone transitions from being a child to being an adult? Now, all across the world, different countries have different laws, but those laws are generally quite similar. Around 18, 19, or 20, different countries recognize legal adults. In Japan, for example, they recognize adults at the age of 20. And there's actually a ceremony that takes place in Japan that the government puts on for ch children who become adults. It's a recognition that you've come of age ceremony. And they do it once a year. And all the 20-year-olds in the city uh, go to this ceremony, well, they're supposed to, and um, they get, you know, all the hoopla of becoming an adult and they get flowers and kisses and things like that. It's interesting that that ceremony uh, has been dying as less and less young people are showing up to them, either because they don't feel like adults, which is one of the reasons they're not showing up, or because they don't care anymore. It's interesting that that ceremony is, is dying. Different religions have varying rituals and concepts when it comes to becoming an adult that are different than the legal system of countries. We're all probably familiar with the Jewish bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, which is when a young person in Judaism becomes responsible and becomes technically an adult before God at 13 years old. Now they are responsible for their sins. Now they are responsible for their obedience to the law at 13. And you'll notice this in other religions, that that age of responsibility typically is around 13, not 18, 19, and 20. In other religions, 13 and 14 and 15 are more commonly the, the way that people think you become an adult around that age. In Shintoism, for example, when a person turns 14, they go to the temple, they get to change their clothes, and they get a special haircut that shows that they are now adults. They actually have... Um, children's clothes and adults clothes and the, the children's don't get to wear the adult clothes until they're 14. I learned about a bizarre coming of age ceremony in the Brazilian Amazon among the Maui people. This is quite intense. What they do when a child be becomes 13, he's now seen as an adult and he's coming into his adulthood and he has to go through a particular initiation to show his manhood. And so what they do is they, get, they, they go out into the jungle and they gather these things called bullet ants. And these ants are about an inch long and they're known to be one of the most painful, have one of the most painful stingers of all insects. And so they go and they gather up these bullet ants 
They sedate the bullet ants. This is really a bizarre practice. They sedate them so the bullet ants are all drugged and they aren't aware of what's going on. And then they make a glove, two gloves actually, kind of look like oven mitts, but they're weaved together and you can stick the bullet ants in between the, uh, the weaving and they stick them so the, the stinger of the bullet ant is facing inside the glove and they basically cover this oven mitt looking thing with bullet ants, sedated bullet ants. And so then their stingers are all inside. And then, of course, the sedation wears off, and those ants are mad. And what do you think that the 13-year-old is supposed to do with those gloves? He's supposed to put them on. <laughs> and he wears it for about 10 minutes. And they dance, and he's wearing the bullet gloves, and the ants are stinging him. And man, the hand becomes all swollen and black. And that is the gateway into adulthood. That is how you become a man, brothers. <laughs> amazing but you can see in religions it seems like coming into adulthood is associated more with puberty which the word actually means age of maturity and the age when you come into your physical maturity that's when religions have typically recognized you become an adult even if the legal systems don't however just as we all know the difference between children and adults, that there is a difference. So we all know that these laws and these rituals are not exact, but they're a general expectation that when you become 13 or when you become 13, 14, and when you become 18, and when you become 19, now you're an adult. You should be an adult by that time. Contrary to Peter Pan, Growing up is a good thing. Peter Pan didn't want to grow up, right? He wanted to stay perpetually a child. But God made us to be adults. Amen? It's interesting. Adam and Eve didn't even get to be kids. He didn't make us to be children. He made us to be adults. And just like a fruit ripens to its apex, what it's supposed to be, so human beings were made to be adults. We were made to ripen. We are made to mature and be what God intended us to be. And of course, childhood is a wonderful blessing and it's beautiful and it should never be taken from somebody, but they're meant to grow and they're meant to mature. And we set these dates and we say, this is when you should be an adult. This is when you should have ripened. This is when you should have matured. But we all know one can find older people who aren't grown up, right? We all know this. There are older people, and we would say, you need to grow up, right? You need to mature. You need to become an adult. You need to act like an adult. They, they're not grown up. And one can also find younger people who seem to be very mature, right? So these are, these are general expectations, these dates, of when a person should be mature. I really like this quote by Francis Bacon. He said, A man that is young in years may be old in hours. I really like that quote. Depends on how that young man spends his time. A young man may spend more hours maturing than a man who's had many years has spent hours maturing. But still, how do we know when a person has come of age? When can we say a person is grown up? When can we say a person is mature? How do we know when that happens? It's a question that's famously been captured in a Bob Dylan song. 
How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? Right? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. <laughs> now, Paul, in the passage that we read, is dealing with the subject of coming of age. And while he touches upon the physical, social coming of age in the first two verses, Paul draws our attention to the more important reality, which is a reality that a lot of people don't recognize, of spiritual coming of age. The important reality of spiritual coming of age. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that there's such a thing, according to the Bible, as spiritual childhood and spiritual adulthood? Have you ever thought about that? That according to God, people can be spiritually immature and spiritually mature. There's spiritual childhood and there's spiritual adulthood. A person may be a physical and social and legal adult, and yet be a spiritual juvenile. Amen? And vice versa. A person may be not even legally an adult, not even physically mature, and yet they are spiritually an adult and not a spiritual juvenile. What is spiritual childhood and adulthood, and when does that transition occur? When does a person come of age spiritually? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to first look at what Paul has to say about physical and social coming of age in the first two verses. And then we're going to look at how this applies to spiritual childhood and spiritual adulthood. So first, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, what Paul has to say about physical and social coming of age. Let's read this together again. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now, it's not difficult to follow what Paul is saying here. Because while there may be some nuances in his culture, like perhaps he's talking about the firstborn son. The firstborn son is the heir of all things. Because we might say, well, aren't all the children heir? He says, as long as the heir is a child. There may be some nuances in, from his culture, but it's not hard to follow his point because what he's talking about here is not a concept that's in any way restricted to one culture or one time. I'm saying that 21st century Americans can understand what Paul's talking about here in verse, verses 1 and 2. Let me give you an example. If you had a son, and let's say he's your only son just for the sake of the argument. You have a son and he's your only son, young son. Would you give him that 1961 Jaguar in your garage? When he's, would you give that to him when he's 10 years old? You got that Jaguar. We'd say, okay, you're 10, it's yours, you know. You're the heir. Let's say, let's say you, you've got it for him. It's his. It's his car. Would you give it to him when he's 10? Would you give it to him when he's 16? Would you give it to him when he's 21? I mean, most of us would say probably, right? But it really depends, doesn't it? Because what if he's a really immature 16-year-old or a really immature 21-year-old, and you know if you give him the Jaguar, he's just going to ruin it. Would you give it to him, even if it's his? Even if it's got his name on it, would you give it to him? 
or it's got his name coming to it. I think all of us uh, would say, yeah, I'd really have a hard time giving it to it, and I might have to give it to him if it's like the law. But if it wasn't the law, I don't think I'd give it to him if I knew he wasn't mature enough to have it. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. He says, the heir, although he owns everything, he should possess everything, as long as he's a child, he doesn't have everything. He doesn't inherit everything because he's a child. And the father waits until he's mature. And that's something we can all relate to. Although Paul is saying something more here than simply that children await their inheritance until they mature, he goes on to say here that children are actually like slaves. That's, that's the truth. It's not fun to admit that, but it's true. You might not like to hear it. But if you're a child, you are a slave. Look what Paul says. I say that the child does not differ at all from a slave. True or false? <laughs> Let's think about it for a moment. What are slaves? Slaves are under masters and they cannot do what they want, right? That's essentially the definition of a slave. Someone who can't do what they want, they're not free to do what they want, and they're under the control and the dominion of others. It's the same with kids. And in, unless you're feeling bad about this, it's the same even with royal kids, you know? Even princes and princesses, when they're children, are no different than slaves. That's just what children are. They are slaves. And this, brothers and sisters, is actually a good thing that children are slaves because children should not be free because they don't have understanding and maturity to use that freedom, Right? They don't have the understanding. You don't want your kid to have no master and be under no dominion and do whatever he wants. How many parents want your children to do whatever he wants? How, do you, how, how many of you know if he does whatever he wants, he's actually going to hurt himself, kill, kill herself, right? So no, you don't want your children to be free. This is not a matter of big, mean adults enslaving little, weak kids because we can Okay, it's not a matter of like, we're just bigger than you and we've got more muscles than you, so we're going to slave. It's actually a matter of love that children are like slaves. It's a matter of love so that they can grow. I'd like to read to you a fascinating portion of uh, a, a dialogue of Plato. This is um, several hundreds of years before Christ, so we're talking B.C. stuff. And in this dialogue, it's a fascinating dialogue, Socrates is talking to a young boy named Lysis. And he's explaining to him, Socrates is, a, is an older, wiser man in Greece, and he's explaining to Lysis a, what it is that coming of age is all about. Now listen to what he says. It's quite humorous, actually. I dare say, Lysis, that your father and mother love you very much. Certainly, he said. And they would wish you to be perfectly happy. Yes. But do you think that anyone, who is, anyone is happy who is in the condition of a slave and who cannot do what he likes? I should think not indeed, he said. And if your father and mother love you and desire that you should be happy, no one can doubt that they are ready to promote your happiness. Certainly, he replied. And do they then permit you to do what you like and never rebuke you or hinder you 
from doing what you desire? No, indeed, Socrates. They are, there are a great many things which they hinder me from doing. What do you mean, I said? Do they want you to be happy and yet hinder you from doing what you like? For example, if you want to mount one of your father's chariots and take the reins at a race, they will not allow you to do so. They will prevent you? Certainly, he said, they will not allow me to do so. Whom then will they, will they allow? There is a charioteer whom my father pays for driving. And do they hire, and do they trust a hireling more than you? And may he do what he likes with the horses? And do they pay him for this? They do. But I dare say that you may take the whip and guard the mule cart if you like. They will permit that. Permit me, indeed they will not. Then I said, may no one use the whip to the mules? Yes, the muleteer. Is he a slave or a free man? A slave. And do they esteem a slave of more value than you who are their son? And do they entrust their property to him rather than to you and allow him to do what he likes when they prohibit you? Answer me now. Are you your own master or do they not even allow you that? No, he said, of course they do not allow it. Then you have a master? Yes, my tutor. This is fascinating because it lines up perfectly with what Paul was saying, how a child is under a tutor. Yes, my tutor, there he is. Is he a slave? To be sure, he is our slave, he replied. Surely, I said, this is a strange thing, that a free man should be governed by a slave. And what does he do with you? He takes me to my teachers. You do not mean to say that your teachers also rule over you? Of course they do. Then I must say that your father is pleased to inflict many lords and masters on you. But at any rate, when you go home to your mother, she will let you have your own way and will not interfere with your happiness. Her wool or the piece of cloth which she is weaving are at your disposal. I am sure that there is nothing to hinder you from touching her, wool, her wooden spathe or her comb or any other of her spinning implements. No, Socrates, he replied, laughing. Not only does she hinder me, but I should be beaten if I were to touch one of them. <laughs> well, I said, this is amazing. Socrates, is, he knows all along. He's just like that. He plays along with him. Well, I said, this is amazing. And did you ever behave ill to your father or mother? No, indeed, he replied. But why then are they so terribly anxious to prevent you from being happy and doing as you like, keeping you all day long in subjection to another, and in a word, doing nothing which you desire, so that you have no good as would appear out of their great possessions, which are under the control of anybody rather than you, and have no use of your own fair person, which is tended and taken care of by another, while you, Lysus, are master of nobody and can do nothing." Why, he said, Socrates, the reason is that I am not of age. Socrates says, I doubt whether that is the real reason, I said, for I should imagine that your father, Democrates, and your mother do permit you to do many things already, and do not wait until you are of age. For example, if they want anything read or written, you, I presume, would be the first person in the house who is summoned by them. Very true. And you would be allowed to write or read the letters in any order which you please, or to take up the lyre and tune the notes and play with the fingers or strike with the plectrum exactly as you please, and neither your father nor mother would interfere with you. That is true, he said. Then what can be the reason, Lysis, I said, why they allow you to do the one and not the other? I suppose, he said, because I understand the one and not the other. 
Yes, my dear youth, I said, the reason is not any deficiency of years, but a deficiency of knowledge. And whenever your father thinks that you are wiser than he is, he will instantly commit himself and his possessions to you. Isn't that fascinating? Here's a dialogue between an old man and a young man thousands of years ago, which I, probably every parent can relate to, eh? And every child could probably relate to as well. Yeah, they don't let me do anything around here. They don't love me. Socrates says, no, they love you. But you don't have the knowledge. And what we see here is that it's not merely a matter of age, but it's actually a matter of understanding. It's not merely a matter of age. It's not just, well, you're just not old enough, you know. It's you don't have the knowledge and the understanding to be free. And for that reason, children are under guardians and managers which are meant to train them. These are not slave masters that are just meant to harm them. These are meant to lead them. That's what pedagogy means, or a pedagogue is someone who leads the child into maturity. Age and understanding do go together. With time and with training come experience and knowledge and a transition from childhood to adulthood. This is what Paul's saying here. And lastly, he says in verse 2, until the date set by the Father. When the Father sees fit, for the son to possess the inheritance. When the father sees fit that the son has come to maturity, then he'll give him the 61 Jaguar. Then he'll say, it's yours, take it. I know that you're not gonna ruin it because I trust you. And then the child who's now an adult is given that his freedom. And there's a, perhaps a parental clue here in verse two, which tells us of how important it is for parents to encourage that coming-of-age process and to recognize it when it happens and not to continually treat their child, their, their son, like a child. So that's what Paul has to say about the physical, social coming-of-age in verse 1 and 2. Now, how does this apply to spiritual childhood? And I'd like to say, first of all, that as we look at how Paul applies this analogy that he gives in verse 1 and 2, it does not seem to be an exact analogy. There perhaps is no exact analogy in the way God has dealt with us that compares to the way uh, human beings deal with their own children. But it's the closest one Paul could find in human experience. But Paul proceeds to show, just as there's physical and social childhood and pedagogy and adulthood, so is there spiritual childhood, spiritual pedagogy, and spiritual childhood. There's spiritual coming of age. And just as with physical childhood and social childhood, the child is in a position where he lacks understanding and therefore does not have freedom and therefore is under uh, slavery and tutors, so it is spiritually as well. People are spiritually children. They don't have spiritual understanding, and therefore they're under spiritual guardians and tutors to bring them into that adulthood. And until they come into that adulthood, they don't have freedom. So the analogy carries over into the spiritual. Look at verse 3. So also we, while we were children, and notice 
Paul is talking to Christians and saying, we are not children anymore. Because he's talking about them in the past tense now. So also we, just like we all relate to verse 1 and 2, so also we, when we were children, which we are not anymore as Christians, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We were slaves. Now what is our guardian and our manager in the spirit or in the spiritual? What is the guardian and the manager? And he says here in verse 3, he uses a new phrase. We were in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The elemental things of the world. The Greek word for elemental things is the word stoikeia. And I think it's a good word for us to add into our vocabulary. I think it's a helpful theological word. So I'm going to be using that word in this sermon, stoikeia. And think of elemental things. The word stoikeia refers to elementary material or elementary principles, the fundamentals, the basics, the necessary building blocks of any system. The stoichia is the elements or the elementary things that make up a greater system. For example, we should all be familiar with the, um, the, the elemental table, right? What's it called again, Nathaniel? The periodic table, yeah. The elements, that's right. Thank you. I, my mind went blank there for a minute. The periodic table, what is it? It's a table of the elements that are the building blocks of everything in this material universe, right? So it's, those are the elements. They can be added together and compounded and make stuff. But when you boil everything down, you get to the elementary stuff that makes up the material universe. The stoichia. That's what the word is, the stoichia. The elements. But it doesn't have to just be the elements of a material world. It can also be the elements of... A, a system of understanding. For example, how many of you have ever heard of Euclid's elements? Euclid was one of the first mathematicians to ever write down the principles of math, and he named his book Stoicheia in Greek. So Euclid's Stoicheia, or Euclid's elements, the elements of mathematics. These are the basic mathematical principles upon which mathematics is built. So you can see the it's talking about elementary principles, ABCs of any system. And so what Paul is saying here, when we were children, we were in bondage under this guardian, the elemental things of the world, the stoicheia of the world, the basics of the world, the ABCs of the world. What is this ABCs of the world that he, that he has in mind? Now, brothers and sisters, I don't believe he's talking about the periodic table here. And he's saying, we were in bondage to the elements on the periodic table. We're not anymore now. <laughs> I don't think he's saying that. Clearly in the context, Paul is using this phrase to describe the law. And in chapter 3, he's already told us that the law was our guardian and our tutor to bring us to Christ and described it as bondage. And also look at chapter 4, verse 5. He says that Christ redeemed us from under the law, so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So let's, in our minds, correlate the stoicheia of the world with the law. The law is the basic principles of the moral aspect of this world, the ABCs of religion, the fundamental building blocks upon which morality and religion is built. Right and wrong. That's what the law teaches us. Right and wrong. 
The law teaches us about judgment and justice and rewards and punishments and blessings and curses and that we all have to do with this. That judgment will be given to all of us. These are the ABCs of morality, right? If you don't believe in right and wrong, some people don't, by the way, then you're missing out on the ABCs and the basics of the world, one aspect of the world. Yeah, you may be a great scientist, but if you don't believe in right and wrong, you don't understand this world as well as you think you do because there's more to this world than the periodic table. Right and wrong, reward and punishment, blessings and curses, these are the ABCs. And notice that all religions in this world agree on these things. If you go to a synagogue, if you go to a mosque, if you go to a ward, if you go to some temple, guess what you're going to hear when you go there? You're going to hear basically the same thing that you would hear in each and every one of them, the ABCs of the world. There's right and wrong. There's good and bad. There's reward and punishments. There's blessing and curses. We all should be striving to do the right thing and not the wrong thing if we want things to go well with us. It's the basics, right? It's actually rather commonplace in this world. You'll hear it all the time. However, there's something else about the basics of the moral universe and the law that is not so common. Because the law does not only teach us that there is such a thing as right and wrong and there is such a thing as judgment day, but the law also teaches us, the law of God, about righteousness and what righteousness in fact is. And what does the law of God tell us that righteousness is. And by the way, this is still ABCs. This is still basic building block stuff. The law tells us in no uncertain terms, this is not a mystery, this is not obscure, but it's men who obscure it, that righteousness to God is perfect love. Perfect love. Let that sink in for a minute. Righteousness is perfect love. That's what goodness is. That's what God requires. That's what you need if you're going to be blessed. And if you don't have perfect love, then you're going to be cursed. That's what the law teaches. Now, we don't like to think about the basics that way, do we? We don't like to think about righteousness as perfect love. How does this world like to think about righteousness? You don't have to be perfect. That's what they all say all the religions besides Christianity. You don't have to be perfect. Excuse me. It's there in no uncertain terms. And nowhere does God ever say you don't have to be perfect. That's a lie. You just have to try your best. And if you try your best, and if you, you, don't, if you aren't perfect, but you're doing more good deeds than bad deeds, if you feel really bad when you sin, if you're putting in some effort every now and again, then you're going to be blessed and not cursed. Then you're going to pass judgment day. But that is not the ABCs of this world. The law was given, the Bible teaches us, and we've studied this in chapter 3, to show us what righteousness is, perfect love, in order to show us our unrighteousness, in order to show us how unfit we are for blessing in order to show us that we're actually fit for destruction and to destroy our naive confidence in ourselves, our juvenile 
confidence in ourselves and so that we may gain a new and a sober confidence in God. That's what the law was given to do. Here's what the basics of the world are. And man, you fall short of the basics. You fall short of righteousness. It was given to teach us, as we read, that there is no one who's good. This is a lesson that most religious people in the world have yet to learn. And you will not hear it if you go to a synagogue, a mosque, or a ward or a shrine. You will never hear from those buildings and people in those buildings that every single one of us is guilty and condemned by God and unrighteous and in need of a Savior outside of ourselves who will give us a righteousness that we cannot produce for ourselves. There's a difference between religion as it is common in the world and Christianity. And here's the difference. There's many ways of putting this. But in this context, the difference is is that Christianity is not elementary. Though it is not opposed to the stoicheia, it's got the basics and it has moved on to the deeper truth of God that not everybody knows. If there's an elementary principle that we are to be learning and Paul te- or the author of Hebrews talks about moving on from the elementary principles as well. Christianity has done that. Christianity has learned its ABCs and has moved on to the deeper truth of God. <coughs> Namely, the stoichia is not the entirety of God's wisdom, ways, and of this world. Do you believe that? The law is not the entirety of God's wisdom, ways, and world, Christ is. Christ is. And that's the difference between Christianity and the other religions in the world. The other religions in the world think the ABCs, the stoiche of the world, that's all there is. Life is, the moral world is simply about learning what to do and doing it so you can be blessed. That's it. That's the end of the story. That's what religion is all about. Do what you're supposed to do, and God will bless you. Unfortunately, these religions haven't even learned the ABCs properly. But Christianity, having learned them, has realized there's more, and it's Christ. Christ brings us out of childhood, out of our ignorance, and out of our slavery into adulthood as sons. And as long as we're failing to learn the lesson of the elementary things, we remain a child in bondage to those things, in bondage to that master. Namely, we haven't yet hit spiritual spiritual puberty. Until a person learns the ABCs, they haven't yet hit spiritual puberty. They still think they're good. They still think it's all about being good. They still think it's all about what we can do. Is this making sense? Because spiritual puberty, spiritual maturity, is understanding what righteousness really is and that you are not righteous and that there has to be more. There has to be more. Otherwise, we're all doomed. There has to be another way. This spiritual puberty doesn't come naturally. It's not something everyone will ultimately get if they just wait long enough. This is something that you have to learn. This is something that the elementary principles are wanting you to learn, but a person has to learn by listening 
and not being stubborn and submitting to that education of God. But brothers and sisters, once you learn the lesson of the stoicheia, of the law, then Christ comes and delivers you into the glorious freedom of sonship. This is what Paul's saying. We were children. We're not children anymore. We used to be slaves. We didn't have freedom. We were under the bondage of the law. Why? Because we didn't have understanding. And the law was given to be a tutor to teach us about righteousness and about ourselves, the thing that we didn't understand, the thing that we are ignorant of. But now we are not children anymore because we understand the law and righteousness and we have believed in Christ. We have come, we have come of age spiritually. Now what is spiritual adulthood? Look at verse 4 through 7. So in verse 3, he says, We were children held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, meaning we're not under the bondage of the stoic anymore of the law. In verse 4, he says this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's an obvious and exciting chiasm here. Look at verse 4 and 5. By chiasm, I mean there's a structure to the text, an intentional structure. There's an A-B-B-A structure. God sent his son, verse 4. God sent forth his son. What is a son? This is a mature adult. This is someone who knows God and who knows righteousness and who knows truth and who is totally free and totally blessed. That's Jesus. Jesus was totally free and totally blessed and totally in the knowledge of the Father. And God sent forth his son and he put him under the law. That is our condition that slavery, that tutorship. He put Christ into our condition so that he might redeem us from out of that condition to what? To the place that he was in, sonship. So that we might inherit his condition of knowledge of maturity, of freedom, and of blessing. And this is what the mission of Jesus is all about in verse 4 and 5. If you ever are in doubt of what the mission of Jesus was all about, Jesus himself said, actually, that he came into the world not to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came into the world not to bring a new law, as so many think. According to the text, he came to deliver us from the law. He came to one, deliver us from the law, and two, to bring us into sonship and to make us God's sons. He came to do this because all who are under the law are cursed, as it says in chapter 3, verse 10. For as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. So we didn't just come into the world to save only those who were cursed under the law because some people under the law aren't cursed. That's not what it says. It's not saying... There are some people under the law who've done it. 
and there are some people under the law who haven't. He came to deliver all those who are under the law because all of them are cursed, because the law requires perfect love, and none of us have given God perfect love. None of us are righteous. And this Christ did, as we all know, it doesn't say here, when it says that he redeemed us from under the law, it doesn't say in this exact passage, but we all know or should know that this Christ did when he died in our place and he died in our stead. He came under the law and the Bible says that though we had all gone astray, though we had all sinned against God, though we had all failed to produce righteousness and though we all deserved damnation and death, that God sent Christ and laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and he died, and it's by his wounds and by his judgment and by his being punished that we are free. And through union to Christ, with him in his death, we become free from the law. God's justice is satisfied, and no more has any demands upon us and makes no more demands upon us. And through Jesus' resurrection, and because we are united to him, not only in his death, but in his resurrection, every believer in Christ is therefore now alive unto God in righteousness as God's sons. So we go from a condition of being under the law and cursed and not God's sons to being out of the law, not under it anymore, not cursed by it anymore, and blessed as his sons. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ did when he came into the world to die for us and to save us and to bring us that gift. We are sons like him if we're Christians. We are righteous without defect. And if we're Christians, we have knowledge now. We're not ignorant about righteousness in Christ. We're not ignorant about God's ways. We don't think that the law is the only thing that has to be said about this world, but we know that God is a God of amazing grace Even though we're condemned by the law, God doesn't end there. God sent his son to redeem us because he loves us and because of his amazing, amazing grace. That's the ultimate thing to be said about God. This is what verse 6 is all about. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And notice that when Paul mentions the Spirit here, Paul brings the readers back to where he started in the beginning of chapter 3. You remember at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And really everything else that he said since then, all through chapter 3 and into chapter 4, is ultimately just him unpacking that question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Law, faith, and the Spirit of sonship. Because we are sons, verse 6 says, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Luther says this, that this is no little cry, to cry, Abba, Father. Now, if you're a Christian, you do this. But this is no little thing. For Luther said, this cry pierces the clouds and the heavens 
and ascends up into the ears of God. You see, the Bible tells us there are lots of people who call, call God Father. But Jesus says there's also a lot of people who don't know the Father. And so while they call God Father, they don't have any understanding of who God is. Just because you call God Father doesn't mean you're actually crying Abba Father with the Spirit of the Son in your heart. Because calling God Father without an understanding is not what Paul's talking about here. This is with the understanding. This is as a spiritual adult. This is one who knows the Father. This is one who understands righteousness. This is one who understands his own unrighteousness. This is one who understands that there's more to God than just law. This is one who understands that God is a God of amazing grace who saved him by grace, not according to his own worthiness or merits, but according to his fatherly love in Jesus. And it's that cry when you say, Abba, Father, I'm calling you because I know who you are and I know that you accept me and I know that I'm forgiven and I know that I'm your son with an understanding. You realize this is what Jesus called the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus obviously called God Abba Father all throughout his life. But it's interesting that in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his most difficult trial, when everything seemed to be going badly, Jesus could still call God Abba Father with an understanding, knowing who God is. I know that you love me. I know that you're righteous. I know that I'm your son, even though all this bad stuff is going down. I think it's because we don't know the Father, people don't know the Father, that they can spend mo much of their life calling God Father, Heavenly Father this and Heavenly Father that, but then when all this bad stuff happens, they stop believing in God. When all this bad stuff starts happening to them, they start saying, where's God? Where is he? He must not care about me. Wait a second, you were calling him your father a minute ago, and now you say he doesn't care about you? You clearly did not understand the Father. If anyone uh, could have doubted the Father's care, it would have been Jesus being handed over to be killed and crucified, even though he didn't deserve it. But he called God a Father and knew the Father. And that's what Paul's saying we have now as adults. We're not children, juveniles, ignorant anymore. We know the Father because we know Christ. And we call him Father with an understanding. Do you call him Father with an understanding, dear Christian? You do, even if you don't recognize it. And Paul wants us to recognize it. Because as Jesus did, we can too. Charles Wesley says in a hymn, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh and Father Abba, Father cry. That's the privilege of the Christian son. I know I'm reconciled. I hear his pardoning voice. I'm not afraid. I come near with confidence. Not confidence naively in myself, but confidence through the blood of Christ. Do you hear his pardoning voice? Do you draw near with confidence knowing who God is through Jesus? What does it mean to be a spiritual adult? Verse 7. Paul says that Christians are no longer slaves, but they're sons. 
And if sons, then heirs. What does it mean to be a spiritual adult? John Metcalf comments on this passage by saying this. Before, all manner of servants of the Father chasten, scourge, berate, and instruct the Son. But once he has grown up and in his, in his inheritance, in the day of his power and authority, then let them try. So he says, when you're a kid, all your tutors and all your guardians and all your masters instruct you and teach you and discipline you and chasten you. But once you become a full-grown adult, let them try. Let them come now. What happens if the tutor comes and tries to boss you around as an adult? Right? And what happens if the prince, even though when he was a child he was like a slave, is now king? And the old masters come and try to boss him around and spank him and do things like that. Let them try. Then he is finished with the old tutors, governors, pedants, schoolmasters, wagging fingers, painful canes. All that is past. He is a man, a son, the heir of accrued dignity, estate, substance, and power. All is now under him, including those now waxed feeble and decrepit that as a boy once ruled over him. The essence of what Metcalf is saying is this is what it is like for us as Christians now. We're not under the law. We're not under masters. We don't have to worry about wagging fingers. We don't have to worry about painful canes anymore. If the voice of condemnation comes to you, you just tell the devil who you are. The devil comes with his condemnation and says, time for the law to come down on you, sinner. You're unrighteous. And you can answer and say, I know that in and of myself I'm unrighteous, but I stand in Jesus Christ and in the righteousness that he's provided, and I have a sonship now, and I have dignity now, and I'm not under your jurisdiction and your law, and you better watch out. Because you coming after me with those, those threats is a sin on your part, for I am a son. And the devil will tremble when we answer him that way. Christian, you have dignity and you have freedom to live as you want in the knowledge of God. Can you imagine? As a Christian, you are not under, under any threat anymore and any master that would punish you or condemn you. Why? Because all of your sins have been taken care of in Christ and you know the Father. What a blessed condition we are in now. And how did that blessed condition come? Paul tells us in a very terse two words. In the end of chapter 7, we are an heir through God. He just sums it all up by saying we are an heir through God. How did this all come about? All because of God and not because of ourselves. God has done this for us. I think as Christians, we just live beneath what we really are. And we still think sometimes that it's really for us just all about the law. And it's just all about doing the right thing to get God's favor. And it's just all about trying to perform and do our best. And if we don't, watch out. The threats are coming. The condemnation's coming. The punishments are coming. That's not true for you anymore as a Christian. You've grown up. How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? And perhaps... Dylan's answer is that the answer is blowing in the wind. 
But the book of Galatians makes it crystal clear that spiritual coming of age occurs when we learn the lesson of the law and put our faith in Jesus Christ for our righteousness. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, you have become an adult. There's physically mature people, as I said, who are spiritually juvenile. There's lots of them. Don't think just because someone is physically grown up that they're spiritually mature. If you go to a physically mature person and you ask them, what must I do to be right with God? And they tell you, keep the commandments and do the things that you're supposed to do. They're a spiritual juvenile. If you go to a teenager and you ask them, what must I do to be right with God and be blessed? And that teenager tells you, well, I want you to know that there's no good deeds that you can do and no keeping of the law that you can do for all this world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no one is going to be righteous through keeping commandments. The only way to be right with God is by putting all of your trust in Jesus Christ, putting all of your hope in what he has done for you, by clothing clothing yourself with him. Then you will be righteous and acceptable, not on your own merits, but through him. I'll tell you, that teenager, even if he's not legally allowed to go to war or to vote, is a spiritual adult according to the Bible. Which are you? Because whichever you are depends upon your eternal blessing or your eternal cursing. Lose the ignorance. Learn the lessons of the ABCs. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone for your righteousness. And be this day delivered from your slavery and into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. Let's pray. Father, these things are so deep and words don't do them justice. And I confess, Lord, that I too often live so far beneath this understanding. I pray that you would continue to teach us more and more as the days go by about what our sonship is in Christ and how we are possessors of that blessed condition that Jesus Christ has with you, Lord, and what it means to no longer be slaves under the law. Please teach us these things, Lord. If this is new for the first time for anyone today, please teach them what it means to be a child and an adult, what it means to be under the law and condemned and delivered from the law and blessed. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for freely loving us and providing for us this amazing salvation. Thank you for your great grace. Lord, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.